This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Black-Tailed Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Blender and welcome back to Talking Mule Deer. Today we've got someone that I that I really look up to and I'm excited to talk to today, Jody. We've got Jason Matzinger. Uh, many of you know Jason Matzinger as uh, producer of Project Mule Deer, host of Into the High Country, and he's also an MDF ambassador. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Jason. So good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Good to see your guys' faces again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We missed everybody at Hunt Expo this year. The uh, Hunt Expo uh, happened a couple of weeks ago and was actually quite successful virtually. It's great to hear that, but there is absolutely nothing that can replace spending time with you on the floor as well as all of the other thousands of people who come to, to Hunt Expo. So next year, 2022, yes. February 10th to 13th, we'll make sure we're all on the floor at, at the Salt Palace for Hunt Expo. Yeah, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, Jason, I just saw that memory pop up on Jim Heffelfinger's uh, Facebook page about you getting the President's Award. And, you know, again, I I think it was well-deserving two years ago. You're still deserving of it now. And, you know, a couple of things we wanted to talk to you about Mule Deer and and MDF are things that really are going on right now in the wintertime. You know, we're uh, here in, in the beginning of March in Montana. The weather's starting to break a little bit. Um... We still got a few months left, but, you know, we know that you get out there and you start, you know, you're a big shed antler hunter. Um, I love looking at your pictures every year. I'm still trying to figure out where you go so that maybe I can go in that same area and find that. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to tell you that on this, Steve. Sorry. Nice try. <laughs> but, um, yeah, give us a little bit, you know, why is shed antler hunting so important to you and to a whole lot of other people right now? Well, it hasn't always been for me. It's actually something that I've grown to love here more and more over, I'd say, the past 10 years. And it's just because, you know, I started paying attention to what these animals were doing um, more outside of hunting season and really following them through all the seasons. And a big part of that is through doing the documentary filmmaking. But I found that the more time I spent out there shed hunting, you know, it gave me an opportunity to really wander through these areas that I hunt in depth without any fear of making a wrong move or going into a bedding area at the wrong time and spooking maybe the buck that I've been trying to hunt. It gave me a chance to really dig into those areas and learn and get a deep understanding of them. So when it did come to hunting season, I knew exactly where those bedding areas were and I knew exactly where those trails were and how they like to move through the forest without, um, you know, having to worry about doing that when the, the time was precious during hunting season. So, you know, and the thrill of it, I just, there's, something so exciting about seeing a fresh brown antler laying on the ground and to know that you're the first human that's touched this antler and and uh you know it's it's 
it's just a fun opportunity. Usually you have cabin fever. You're looking for something to get out and do. Particularly this year. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And it it's kind of one thing leads to another. You know, I go out looking for shed antlers and the next thing I know, I find a good turkey hunting area and then I can go turkey hunting there. And, you know, it, uh, it all kind of just blends together. But um, yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is how much I've been able to piece together my hunting areas and get such an understanding of them um, when I'm not worried about spooking a deer or the time of day I'm in there. That's interesting because I, I, you know, it's funny. Well, I, I have, you know, we unfortunately have not been able to get out and do a lot of shed antler hunting. So I've always thought about it in the context of the end game being the, the shed antlers. I didn't think about it in the context of, of preseason scouting, effectively starting your hunting year moving forward. Are you mo mainly public lands um, shed antler hunting or you have access to some private property or what, what are you, what are you doing? Both. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's about 50-50. I do have access to some good ranches to be able to shed hunt, but also um, I've had some of my best days on public as well. So it's it's about 50-50. Um, when you spend as much time out there walking around and covering the good areas, you know, there's only so many. So you end up finding yourself all over the place, just trying to find the new next best area. <laughs> Well, and it's good exercise, too. Uh, I know that's one of the things that I look forward to. But, you know, I, I, I sort of look at it a little different, Jason, and, and a lot of the things you say resonate with me, but I'm a biologist. I spent many, many years in the field um, growing up, being taught how to hunt by my brothers and my father. We always wanted to know what deer were doing when we didn't see them. So we backtracked a lot, and it was really funny to tell people, what well, did you follow that deer? Oh, yeah, he went this way. No, no, where did he come from? And you backtrack to see where their bedding areas are, and then you find those trails and you find new areas. But I always, you know, as, as spending, I spent about 15 years, 20 years walking around on public lands as my job. And it was amazing how many antlers I found and how many things you talk about, you know, learning other things when I'm out there doing it. I never thought that people would just go out and do that in their spare time. Uh, I thought that's something you did closer to hunting season, but I got to the point where I, unless an antler's unique or close to a vehicle, I don't even pick them up anymore because I've collected so many and they're in a box in my shed or they've become dog chews or made a little furniture out of them. It's just, it's amazing that this antler hunting thing has caught on. And, and as a biologist, we've talked about it many times on this show. People really have to be worried about putting extra stress on wintering animals in areas where we have animals on winter range and it's gotten to the point many states have put seasons on antler hunting because people just were not respecting the animals and giving them time to get through these hard winters before they got out there and started you know looking for the antlers so do you see when you're out there folks disrespecting you know animals pushing animals all the things we hear about or is it you know more of uh, an urban myth that we see, um, particularly in parts of rural Montana that I know that you go to? A little bit of both. I mean, I feel like because of the, you know, growing popularity of shed hunting, I feel like I've definitely seen some areas where you know, guys are just going in way too early. You know, you're seeing bulls up on the side hill or bucks and 
nine out of 10 of them are still packing, but there's that one that's lost its, its antlers and there's guys up there just scouring the, the side hill for it. And, you know, public, public land is different. You know, it's kind of like the hunting, there's more competition. Guys are trying to beat each other. So therefore, yeah, they're putting unnecessary strain on these animals to try to get in there first instead of giving them the time they need at a critical time of the year for them when their energy and fat reserves are at an all-time low. And it's unfortunate. And, you know, I think putting some restrictions as much as I hate restrictions is, is good for the wildlife. And if we can't police ourselves and be better for the wildlife and, you know, their ultimate, you know, survival rates, then um, something needs to be put in place. That is the one nice thing about private land is it's more organized. You don't have to feel that rush to get out there and put the pressure on the animals. And, you can work with the rancher and, you know, have a time to go in there and pick it up when it's all laying there and everything's dropped. And there isn't that race to get in there and, and get it first. So I see it a little bit of both ways, but it's always important, you know, whether you're on private land or public to, to make sure to give those animals the space they need until, you know, the weather is better and, and they're just in a better place. All their horns are dropped. You're not looking for one set out of 10 that are still hanging on deer. You know, it's, uh, it's a tough time of the year for them. I, and that's usually what about the first, first week of May, right? Yeah. I mean, for elk here in Montana, a lot of guys will start going the beginning of April into March. Um, and same for deer. Uh, and it, and it also depends, you know, it's area specific. Like when you look at, say, the eastern part of our state, there isn't that big winter migration through the mountains, through chest deep snow for these animals. For the most part, they move a little bit, but they're kind of wintering in the same spots where they rut and have their fawns and all of that. They're not moving super far in a lot of these spots out east where you look at like say Yellowstone Park and uh, the animals that move in and out of there in migratory patterns, you know, there's a lot more stress on those animals in the mountains to get through that snow. So, you know, I think it's, it's area specific too, when it comes to what those animals are dealing with, how they, you know, have survived the winter and, and all of those factors go into play. Well, and I think, uh, I think the concept, you know, we, we, we like to think that as hunters, we carry that, that ethical fair chase sportsman attitude when we're in the field and you make the right choices to, to, to not do any intentional harm beyond the animal that you're taking. And, uh, and you don't necessarily, some people may not consider that for the shed antler hunting concept that, that it's a similar thing, but there is an ethic, a, a, a sportsmanship side of making sure that you're not doing undue harm because 
pushing those animals too much, as you said, if they're if they're just trying to survive, um, that adds additional. And and we have to also remember that it's not just us going out there and shed antler hunting. There's more people hiking, just plain old hiking out in the woods, or mountain biking, or doing all the other winter sports. So the increase of recreation in general on these animals in this this kind of more fragile state has a cumulative effect and impact. And ultimately, that will end up affecting the long term viability or the success or, or the, the growth of those animals into the future. So you're kind of undermining your own, your own luck the next year through that as well. Well, and we've even seen it go so far, Jody, is that there's contests now that are starting to come west on public lands, shed antler contests. And of course, shed antler hunting dogs are a big thing now. And um, that one probably worries me more than, a, you know, someone out there walking around because deer, elk, all cervids have evolved to fear canines, regardless of the size. So they have a flight response, even to the smallest dog that's may or may not be on a leash, given up to, you know, the ones that actually look like wolves. It's, it's, it's genetic to them. And, you know, you're out there letting a dog go free to find a piece of bone that's going to be there in a couple of weeks that, you know, is going to force that animal to go through fat reserves much quicker than they would if you left them alone and and you know let's face it dog like dogs like to chase deer i don't care how well trained they are it happens and then we push deer elk into areas where they're not supposed to be either where they can't survive snows too deep onto private land all sorts of other things so um i you know i hope that we control ourselves and we don't see a lot more regulation i think seasons are okay right now uh, just because we have so many things going on, we got to give animals rest. And we also need to be thinking of, as Jody said, the future of these herds. So, but I think, you know, like anything else, we sort of over abuse some things and I, I don't want to see any more restrictions put on it. But um, Jason, we've got to take a break for our supporters. So after the break, we want to come back in and talk about some other things that, that you're doing right now getting prepared for next season or that you're out there still doing and beyond. So we'll see you on the other side of the break. Sounds good. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the Western U.S., our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, go to the Supporting Partners page on muledeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right, we're back, uh, Jason. Right before the break, we we had wrapped up our our conversation about shed antler hunting, but we were 
there's a lot of other stuff that's going on right now in the, the, the off season, if you will, about getting prepared for, for next year. What are some of the things that you're doing now to think about your hunting seasons and what should some of the listeners start to be thinking about doing now that, you know, tag deadlines are starting to come up, uh, preseason scouting opportunities over the summer to give us a few tips on, on what you do in the wintertime uh, when you're not out in the field actually hunting. Yeah, so I mean, this time of year, like you say, Montana's tags actually just came out yesterday. So kind of going over the regulations and how things have changed up this year, whether it be draw odds or tag numbers, that sort of thing. Um, You know, and there's a lot of resources too, like Eastman's Tag Hub and things like that, that people can really rely on to get help um, for, you know, harvest rates and draw odds for residents, non-residents, all that kind of stuff. So those are always really good resources. And for me, you know, not to kind of circle back on what we just talked about, but I mean, I'm always kind of, kind of out there filming and uh, documenting, watching the game that, that I think is as important as anything. I mean, I've, I've just found the more that you can be around the wildlife that you're wanting to hunt in the areas that you're hunting, whether it's hunting season or not, I mean, that'll teach you more than you can learn any other way. So for me, that's the main thing I do to always be prepared for next year and know, you know, because areas change. One year that might have been good seven years ago is no longer good anymore and an area that was kind of a decent area that i used to hunt is now really flourishing and so kind of bouncing around the state keeping updated with what's going on in all those different areas i think is important and not getting too locked into one spot um and then you know it's kind of funny but uh there's there's good and bad things that come out of social media in the hunting community one thing that I think is good is when you kind of see through all the conversations and things that happen and you just take what you see at face value, like pictures and people's success and where they live. And, you know, you can start to formulate a pretty good idea of what areas are having good success on big bucks or high numbers. Um, you know, areas that people are continually talking about. I mean, that's one thing that I've learned. Or even in the middle of season, all of a sudden I'll be in my office and my feed is full of my friends or family members like getting their big mule deer for the year. And I know that the rut has just kicked in. And I mean, it's that quick and it's like, okay, Ryan, we need to load up and and go mule deer hunting because it's happening right now. You can see it like right on your feed. So I actually kind of use social media and, and, you know, filtering the people I follow and respect and kind of how they're doing as a tool all the time too. And that's very in the now, right now kind of information that's at the palm of your hand. So Note to self, don't publish any pictures of your deer right away. <laughs> Make sure you don't tell the, no, just there's, kidding. There's <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Well, Jason, I imagine you're, you're doing a lot of post, uh, post film editing from your hunts and, and your filming of last year at this time. Um, I, that, that's gotta be a tedious process, but it also has to be a super rewarding process because you're reliving those experiences every time you do that. Um, 
Last time we talked, I think you told us a super story about a buck that gave you the slip by doing something that bucks don't usually do. Is there anything that happened this past year when you were hunting or filming, uh, whether it was on film or not, that you just still just got a you just get an odd of what wildlife can do out there? Well, yeah, I'm trying to think of one specific thing that may have happened this year that that really stands out to me. Um, Because, yeah, it's incredible the things that you witness them do. Um, You know, I would say one thing that stands out to me, mule deer specific, is my boy is now in his third season of being able to hunt mule deer. And and, um, so he's getting to the point where he's really, it's not just about getting, you know, going with dad and getting a deer. He's really starting to figure out why are we there and why are the deer there and kind of putting the pieces to the puzzle together. And I thought it was really cool this year. We set up on a buck that I actually ended up taking later in the year, but we set up for him. And uh, this buck was bedded at like 120 yards away. And there was only one tree on the hillside. And my boy was leaned up over the log, ready to go. And I mean, this deer, we thought had nowhere to go. We thought as you know, as soon as he stands up, we're going to get the shot and all of this hanging out in the cold will be worth it. And the buck had no idea we were there and stood up out of his bed and faced straight away from us and then turned and whipped right behind this bush. And then there was this one little contour to the hill that didn't look like much, but it was more than we thought it was. And the deer went behind that bush and into the contour and we never saw him again the rest of that afternoon. And I mean, I thought if I was in Vegas putting money on whether he was going to get a shot at that buck or not, I would have put all in on he, he was going to get a shot. (laughs) And it just, it just goes to, you know, goes to show you time and time again that yeah, it's just, it's never a sure thing. And and it, it amazes me how close you can get to these animals so many times where they can walk in so graceful, not knowing that what your intentions are, and then walk out so graceful and never having really known what's going on. But, you know, and, and we struggle on our end to put it together. And it's always just so humbling how, I guess, gracefully, they just move through the terrain and and have have a knack for survival i don't know it's hard it's hard to explain but that that really was humbling for my boy and me as well i mean he he thought he was going to get a shot too and just couldn't believe this deer could use one bush and a little crease in the hill and not see him again you know and be gone so yeah i know that hunting with our daughter that's gosh we 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 had a, a Uh, continued frustrations with uh, cow elk hunt um, this year, ultimately succeeding finally after four years of trying. But while you're going through those frustrations, they are, I mean, they just eat at you and you you keep getting, why, why can't this all come together? Why can't? And when it finally does, you realize that every single one of those was a lesson along the way that you're taking with to, to reach the ultimate success, either on that particular hunt or on a future hunt. And, and I think, again, that's part of what 
this is all about is every one of those has different types of interactions with animals that you're learning from and seeing how they live and, and doing their, and if you're not walking home with something that day, you're walking home with something in your brain about what you've learned about their, their habits, um, how they use the terrain, how they, how they live their life. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the coolest things I've been seeing and learning. You bet. You know, I, um, one of the places I hunt Jason that I took my daughter to, um, there's two things she remembers you know she's killed a decent deer out there and she really enjoys going with dad she didn't go this year because of school commitments but when we talked about it she goes are you going to make me open all those gates there's one spot we go through that there's like seven or eight gates and of course she's got to open and close them my son found that out this year Um, but the other one is we found we found a petrified tree that was probably 15 18 feet sticking out of a hillside when we were, you know, putting a stock on a mule deer and she's just like, can we go back and see that petrified tree? And I, and I, you know, I get so wound up about, you know, finding deer and, you know, thinking how to get something and that I, I sometimes don't stop to think about how really cool to find a tree trunk sticking out of a hillside in a coulee in Eastern Montana or, you know, being able to walk up to a porcupine in a fallen log and walk right up to it and look at it. And it's, you know, without it being killed on the side of the road. And, you know, I stop and think all the time of the things that most people overlook and don't take advantage of refilling their soul by experiencing it. They see it. They don't realize it's going on and they get so focused on the end. You know, game. I got to go kill the big buck and get yeah. my picture out there to my friends and, you know, be the bragging board and everything else. But, and, and I think we've come a long way to, to start to come back to that, you know, as, as Jody and I know, Jason, there are, there's published papers out there on the seven stages of hunting and, and how you go through everything and come back. And we all get to the point, we start off as naturalists and appreciators of the natural world. And we end up back there at some point in our life. And as I've gotten older, um, in, in being the old person on this call, I've really come back to, I, it does not bother me if I don't fill my tag or if I decide to take an animal that's, you know, a smaller animal for meat or whatever. And, you know, I, it, when I was in my twenties and thirties, I'd have never thought I thought would ever think that way. So it really is, you know, teaching my kids to hunt, spending more quality time outdoors is what it is for me. And Jody and I talk all the time and, you know, it's been, it's been an honor to to listen to her talk about this cow elk hunt in uh, Colorado through the years. And it was as exciting for me this year to hear that they finally got one as it probably was for them to actually do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. We were just reflecting just a couple of days ago about, you know, at the time there was a number of frustrations along the way and, and over the years and, and how um, that full circle and, and, my family, we call it second degree fun where, where all the bad things that go wrong aren't funny at the time, but when you look back or, you know, that you, they're amusing or, or have fun, but, but it is, I think that journey with um, a new hunter or a child really is parting, adding to that, that, that whole experience. So I agree. we do have to take another break mm-hmm. to hear from our supporters. Um, but when we come back, Jason, we definitely want to visit with you a little bit more about um, some of the stuff that you are doing uh, that you've got plans for, for the upcoming season. And, and again, uh, talk a little bit about the conservation continues that you helped us out with, uh, at, with the Mule Deer Foundation last year with the COVID situation. So, so let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll, we'll continue on this discussion about what's going on in your world. Sounds great. 
The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation, working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, innovative optics and apparel backed by our VIP warranty, our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure Mule Deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at VortexOptics.com. I'm Anthony Imperato, president of Henry Repeating Arms. Patriotic Americans are looking to protect and provide for their families now more than ever. Henry has over 200 rifles and shotguns to choose from, made in America or not made at all, and backed by a lifetime guarantee. Go to HenryUSA.com and order our free catalog, decals, and a list of dealers in your area. That's HenryUSA.com. Thank you, and God bless America. All right, so we were, both Steve and I were, were doing our reminiscings about our kids last time, but we didn't give you a chance to, to kind of fill in that, uh, your, your own experiences as you've kind of come through your life and now bringing your kids on. Because I know I remember several years back when your kids were younger and weren't there. So, so I'd love to hear a little bit of your reflection on some of those experiences as well. Well, yeah, I mean, to back up what you said, I do think bringing a young hunter in helps you evolve from that stage of it being about getting the biggest animal or being the best hunter or getting further in. It really grounds you into a whole different phase of of your hunting path. You know, for me, as you know, growing up in a hunting family and then kind of continuing that with doing the show and the the conservation films and stuff, I always have this idea of the way I would like a hunt to lay out for, you know, whether it be a film I'm working on or or whatever. And, and that's hard enough to make happen, you know, without kids. But then I learned that that hunting with kids is at first I was really frustrated like the first you know three or four days of hunting with my boys out there I was frustrated I'll be honest because nothing was going as planned absolutely nothing was going as planned nobody was happy we weren't seeing the deer the weather was bad the brother you know one brother would be happy the other would be not happy and trying to balance it and i'm trying to like make it this just epic thing that i've dreamed of since the day i had a you know a boy and knew i was going to take him hunting and so but once i let go of that once i let go of it having to work out this way or in my mind you know it having to work out this way and then just letting them take the reins more or less and letting letting them dictate what was going to be fun that day and and uh it's it's yeah it's a whole new world and and being able to hunt with them out there i mean this year when my boy did finally get his buck we had laid out in the sage for a good while, probably an hour, and it was cold. And my youngest boy, he's six, his name's Asher. He was getting impatient, um, waiting for older brother to get his shot. And so, you know, we were on enough of a rise of a hill that the deer couldn't see over the back of the rise. So, you know, after Asher started getting bored, I just let him go do his thing. And he was back there, not 20 yards behind us, 
digging in the bank and throwing rocks and breaking sticks and doing everything. And it didn't affect the hunt in the least. And, you know, in fact, it just made it so much better. And so that's the one thing I've learned through journey of hunting with my kids is, you know, you just got to let go of maybe those preconceived notions of, of this, you know, what you think it's going to be and just let it be what it is. And it is such an enjoyable experience. And the things that they walk away remembering are not the things you would have expected them to remember. I mean, my youngest boy walked away from this hunt talking about the crystals that we found on the side of the hill as we were walking down on this stock and he found a snake skin. Those are the two things that he remembers beyond anything is these little crystals and this snake skin. So yeah, it's uh it's been incredible and and, and it's neat cuz I feel like I am right in the middle between my dad sort of tapering off in hunting and kind of kicking back and not really wanting to even pull the trigger on anything anymore, but just be there. And then my boys coming up so eager on the the other side and then me right in the middle, Mm -hmm. kind of on my own path, but also just really cherishing what's going on around me. It's a great place to be. And um, yeah, it's can't say enough about it. It's it's a whole new dimension of hunting. I th- that's that's cool. And I'm I'm reflecting and thinking about it because I think one of the things that my husband learned and, and I, I think there is there are I, forgive me, but there are slight gender um, related things as well that the dad, the husband has that this is the way it needs to go. But there's also the years and years and years of experience that you guys have that the new hunter doesn't have. And, and so it, one of the things that he learned was you can't just expect that in the heat of a, a, you know, things happening that they're going to know and understand what to do. And so the ability to step yourself back and remembering your own first experiences, when that herd comes over the hill at you or whatever it is, you know, you, you don't have time to explain it. Uh, so, so being able to remember that this is a new experience and, and they're seeing it differently. Um, I think that's another good thing to keep in mind when you're hunting, whether it's with a kid or a spouse or, or any new hunter, it, it is an entirely, it, this is all new to everything. And again, like you said, they're going to see and absorb things differently. Um, and, and so I think all of those are really important because it, this is what we all as hunters need to do. And again, I, I consider myself a you know, a newbie and a, a, a relative novice in this, even though I've kind of been doing it my whole life. So I see, I sit kind of halfway in between the the experience and the the novice. And, and I think as we all should be taking people out and experiencing the outdoors, whether they're your kids or somebody else, some of these are really important for us to keep in mind. You know what, Jason, that there's a common thread through what you described as your dad's getting older and your kids are younger, you're going to do all the gutting. <laughs> and you're going to carry the heaviest load and do all of the hard yep, work. No, that is definitely part of it. But it's <laughs> it's such a satisfying feeling to sort of, you know, do what my dad did for me, but also repay him at the same time, you know, on the other end. It's it's a cool Absolutely. spot to be. I did a film last year called The Older I Get, and um, it talks about all of this stuff that we're talking about. So is there anything that you do as a family that, you know, a little ritual, a little idiosyncratic, uh, action that you do that was taught to you. And now you've taught to your children on when you're out hunting. 
nothing that I can really think of, you know. Um, nothing. You, there probably is. You're probably passing down something that, you know, if I was standing watching, I'd be like, Jason, why'd you do that? And you'd be like, well, my dad taught me how to do that. And now I'm teaching my, just so my children how to do that. Whether it's, you know, uh, we have knives in our family and hunting knives that have been around, you know. I remember the one that was given to me. I've given it to my kid. I gave my dad's knife to my other kid, you know, and, um, you know, they're, the, they're the, the fixed blade hunting knives that we really don't use much anymore, but we always carry sure. them with us. You know, we carry Snickers bars with us because that's what my dad had in his pocket <laughs> and he stuffed in our pocket as a kid. I won't eat too. a Snicker bar the rest of the year, but I will have Snickers bars in my pocket during old. hunting season and uh, you know and you you know i pass that down i stick one in my kid's pocket you know and you know what when you're out there in the prairie particularly eastern montana and that wind's blowing and there's no shade and you know you gotta wait around they're real happy that you stuck in a <laughs> sticker bar in their pocket yeah no doubt <laughs> so yeah no uh so so jason we we um we know into the high country how many seasons have you done now and what do you what are you working on now and you know what are you excited about for 2021 um sans drawing any tags but are there any special projects or anything like you've done in the past coming up um yeah so we're just finished our 11th season of into high country uh we're producing season 12 right now which we filmed pretty much all last fall last year um we had a great season we did some different hunts than we normally do which uh you know kind of leads me to your next question as far as upcoming projects that i'm excited about we uh kind of a long story but i ended up buying uh some helicopter time at actually a, a local rmef banquet here about seven years ago that a guy here in town that i know had donated and it was for two hours of flight time and dinner for two at Big Sky, Montana. And for some reason, I had just never really cashed in on that. Well, this year he wanted, he was like, yeah, I would like to get this taken care of. Well, I didn't draw the special elk tag that I normally draw in Montana for archery this year either. So I was really kind of looking at my different options and where I was going to hunt. And I had this idea to um kind of highlight the amount of landlocked public land across the western united states by instead of using this helicopter time to go up to big sky i asked him if he'd be willing to drop me off in some stuff to bow hunt elk and so we did that this september and filmed it and named it we're doing a project now called project landlocked and basically it's uh onyx maps and trcp have been working on what they call the landlocked report here the last several years and they've been compiling an enormous amount of data on this subject and so uh, onyx is the lead uh, partner of this film um, and we sort of use this opportunity to go into some landlocked stuff and hunt to tell the greater story and deliver the message of um you know where checkerboard properties were ever originated why that was a thing how that ever came to be 
uh, here in the United States, um, kind of look at the history of that and then look at where we are today with everything and then what the future looks like. You know, we don't have the answer. Um, I don't think anybody has the clear answer to what that looks like, you know, 20 years down the road. But the reality is, is it's a subject that, you know, needs to be talked about and aired out and at least start being addressed, in my opinion, of what what are our options for the future of this and making things better for everybody? Um, you know, David Attenborough is a uh, somebody I look up to immensely for his work, you know, globally in wildlife. And um, he just put out a film called The Life on This Planet that's on Netflix. And it's a, it's a great, well done. It's like his you know, life's work accumulated into one film and it's just fantastic. But one thing that he says in that that really stuck out to me is in the next 10 years, by 2030, they predict that there's going to be at least 30 million more people in the United States alone. And so, you know, you just wonder what that looks like if, if, hunters and fishermen and recreators, campers, hikers, bird watchers, if everybody is already sort of feeling the pressure of, you know, we don't have enough room for everybody to enjoy all these activities, yet we have these millions of acres that are sitting there that we can't really touch, you know, I guess it's just an opportunity to open up the door and and start, the, not start the conversation because it's been a conversation, but just continue the conversation and maybe try to find a place that, or a solution that makes sense for the future of our kids and access and, you know, opportunity to enjoy the same stuff we have. Well, we really look forward to seeing that. Um, I will tell you this, Jason, that, you know, uh, Mr. Attenborough is getting older, and as is Peter Coyote, who are probably two of my most favorite narrators of of documentaries and films. And I think you would be a great replacement. You know, you're, you've got that voice in the work you've done in documentaries. So, you know, put that on your little, you know, on the shelf there that if it ever comes up, we need to make sure that, that films like that and people with charismatic voices and can tell stories without being you know seen personally continue out there because i know my whole career and upbringing was was filled with with people like that and we need to keep it going and i put you on that list jason so we need to take another break uh real quick to hear once again from our supporters elk sheep big old muleys not a problem for the 27 nosler we packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Win Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nosler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. Okay, we're back after uh, thank, hearing from our supporters and thank them again for, for what they do. Jason, before we go, I wanted to just circle back with you a little bit about um, your work you've done with Mule Deer Foundation Project Mule Deer. You also helped out in uh, right at the beginning of the, the, 
the COVID pandemic with the Conservation Continues video and encouraging people to continue to support Mule Deer Foundation because our organization, along with many others, has been significantly impacted financially um, due to the inability to have banquets. Thankfully, we've had we had several this past weekend. We've got a number of others that are starting to come back with restrictions starting to loosen. More in-person events are going to happen, but but you helped us out in a real tough time, along with a number of our other um, our, our other you know supporting ambassador type folks. Tell us a little bit if you've got any other things for Mule Deer Foundation or and or what kinds of Mule Deer projects you've got coming up in the future. Um, yeah, so um, the conservation continues thing. I mean, that's important to me and as it should be to anybody that's a member of these organizations. It's it's easy to sort of get caught up in uh, the busy bustle of life and forget when these chapters or these banquets aren't right in front of you. So, you know, I appreciated the opportunity to help out and just continue to spread the message. I know the online banquet stuff has been sort of a new uh, landscape for everybody on both sides from the organizations to the the people trying to uh, participate, but they've been fun. I mean, personally, I've enjoyed and been impressed with what the organizations have been able to do in a short amount of time to keep the ball rolling. And so, yeah, I think it's important to do everything you can, even through these times to, you know, get us through that next phase and until we can sort of get back on track and pick up where we were, because, you know, the, the animals, they don't know what's going on in our crazy world and politics and they need the help the same every day. So absolutely. Yeah. The online, the virtual hunt expo was, was excess, as successful as it could possibly be. I, I think it was over 8 million um, that was raised, which is comparable to the in-person. Um, and there was, uh, when you add in the uh, tags as well, the auction tags, oh, the, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the, the um, limited access ones that, that puts us over $8 million. And, that doesn't come to us. Um, that goes back out to the state agencies for at least the vast majority of it goes back to the state agencies for uh, wildlife conservation efforts. So, so that has been successful. Of course, we we lose that in person element that we get when it, we have those banquets uh, and the connection. I think one of the things that that uh, that we're hoping to also see out of this is is more people were able to participate in some of these online auctions. Whether they were, I mean, if if you don't have to go somewhere, if you don't have to travel you can you can participate online and virtually and i think the opportunity to build membership um, to have people become members if they're not already of the mule deer foundation is really important and, and you helped tell um some great stories through project mule deer several years ago about mule deer conservation um you know again i think we appreciate very much our ambassadors and others helping to tell the story of conservation um so thank you for all of that work and and you know mdf is we've got a new ceo started on march 8th and so we've got a lot that's that's going to be coming in the future uh in the next couple of weeks months years so you know, it's it, the the future is bright, even though we've had some some challenges along the way. Yeah, we're going to be launching a couple new initiatives here that that we're definitely going to want you to be a part of. I'm really trying to figure out where deer need the most help. Um, you know, right now it's called the Priority Herds and Priority Landscapes Initiative. We're working with our federal and state partners and our and our chapter members to, you know, rather than continuing random acts of kindness, which are all good in the local area, where can we step up, be more focused, work with our partners better, do bigger things 
at the landscape level so that we can address some of those long-term chronic ills, whether they be habitat or other, that mule deer herds or black-tailed deer herds are experiencing. And, you know, what we hope to see, and a, and a lot of other groups have done this, um, you know, basically focal area type of approach to conservation. Um, wh what we really want to see is, you know, mule deer respond pretty quickly to habitat changes or to other things. And so we're going to be able to document the good that we do, um, sort of the before after control impact sort of approach that we use in the science world is you can, you know, you're going to be able to document what was there, what we did, and then what was the results. And we're actually going to be looking at the citizen scientist role of helping MDF and the states and the feds to monitor the effects of of the work that we do whether it's through pellet counts browse counts you know sightability surveys trail camera work etc because i think one of the things that the public doesn't know is the results of the actions that organizations take and you know i can spend the next three hours is would you jody and i could fill the airways full of everything we did in 2020 during covid let alone the things that we've done over the past 10 years and we haven't really promoted and marketed that the way it needs to be because, you know, we're seeing benefits of that. And we're in, but we're not storytellers. I mean, I'm a biologist who works in the policy <laughs> world and helps run an organization. Uh, you know, Jody is, is great in the communications world, a biologist in her own right. But we're not like what you are. You're a communicator. You're a promoter. You can actually tell stories that we can't. And we really need to get better at that. Well, it, as you guys know, it takes a team. I mean, all I do is deliver the message of all the work that you guys have, you know, worked so hard at and, and continue to do. And I think it's just the natural progression of, you know, uh, an organization is to, you know, really be proud of the work they've done and, and show people what's been done because it does have real change. I think one people that one thing that people maybe overlook is they think that they're, you know, being a member for one year, donating a $50 or their time for one day, feel like that doesn't make a difference. And Steve, you know, as well as anybody that that is what makes the difference. And so, you know, I just look forward in, in telling and showing the work that's been done because it does make you feel warm and fuzzy inside when you see the beginning and the end. It, it's the why of why we all do what we do. And it's, uh, for me, it's the most rewarding stories to tell, you know, that's why I'm in this is to tell those stories. And, and I love it. So I'm just, I look forward to working with you guys and, and helping, you know, show off all the hard work you've done. A little short story on that, uh, Jason, I, last summer we were we were on a tour. It's it's an Aspen tour in Wyoming. I took our regional director Sean Blazjack down there, and while we were on the tour, it was on the forest that I started my career on. Um, and you know, people knew that because we, you know, Wyoming is a small town with really long streets. But I was able to take the group back to areas that I did Aspen work 25 years ago, and it was 
you know, it's the documentation is gone. The story hasn't been told. No one's monitored it. But I was able to go back there and say, this is a result of work that was happened 25 years ago when I was working with the Forest Service. And here's what it looked like before. Here's the benefits now. Here's what we have to come back in to do to maintain those aspen stands so that they stay highly productive. And, you know, long story short, I ended up <laughs> being the person that spoke more than anyone else on that field trip because I had worked on that forest for 10 years. I had done a lot of the work, and the people that were there now didn't have that history, didn't have that intimate knowledge. And I would love to go back and, you know, be able to document that better and tell that story better because th you think about I was one – uh, you know, wildlife guy on a forest. Think how many people are out there, foresters, wildlifers, range cons, landowners, you know, volunteers doing all this work that we take it for granted that wildlife's out there. But it's really because of the hard effort that dedicated individuals do that have passion, whether they're hunters or not, to see natural worlds functioning and to dedicate their time, money, and energy to those things that are going to keep wildlife on the landscape. And we just happen to focus on, on deer but it's going on across the board. And, and with, with what you've said about the stresses of an increased population, drought, climate change, the ability to produce food, more and more people being out on the landscape year-round, it's going to be more and more important that people invest, whether it be $10, $100, $1,000, or whatever it is, their time and everything else into these organizations and agencies that are out there doing good work. And we can't forget about the private landowners doing the great work on their own land. Sometimes we overlook that with the groups that work on public lands. But, you know, it, it, it really does take all of us, and we ought to be proud of it. We ought to wear it like a badge of honor, and I think sometimes we don't. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, just as a community, hunters, ranchers, um, you know, they're, we've always been taught not to brag you know, or boast about ourselves. So it's not what comes naturally. So, but I think, you know, this work needs to be, needs to be shown. And, and like you say, we ought to be proud of it because just in my lifetime, I've seen how it's made a difference. And I've also come to realize that the amount of human interaction it takes, like you say, to enjoy these natural landscapes and and the beauty and the the wildlife it's you know when you see a deer on the side of the road or an elk or a, a bighorn sheep it's there's been a lot of work that's gone in to making sure that those deer have a place to be there it's not just by chance and the more the older i get the more i learn that and there's a, like you say a pile of people that make that happen and and it needs to be told and it's an awesome career and thing to get into. I uh, I'll speak for 30 years of experience that, you know, I never dreamed of any doing anything different. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, we've, uh, we've already taken up a lot of your time today, Jason, and we really appreciate it. Do you have any other closing thoughts? Any, any last, uh, last moments of Zen or intelligence <laughs> that you want to pass on to our listeners since, uh, since you obviously have so much experience and, and so many things to, to give and tell to the, the folks that listen to talking mule deer. Well, I think we covered a lot of, you know, important stuff on this, but I guess, you know, in lieu of what we're talking about, it's just, you know, with more people being out there and with there being more competition um, for shed antlers or recognition on social media or whatever, I just think that 
we need to stop and really take the time to police ourselves better and more than we have in the past and really think about the long-term effects of of those moves that we make because uh, good or bad, they do have effects. So, you know, I think just, just treating every situation as though somebody's watching and, and always taking the high road, you know, you can never go wrong with that and it'll do everybody better in the end. So, yeah. Yeah. Even, even the tiniest pebble thrown into a, into water will have ripple effects and, and it's your choice of whether that pebble is a good thing or if it's the negatives um, that, that cause that ripple yeah. effect. Steve? I do, but thoughts? I'm not going to go there because you're pulling out the philosophy 101 from college. But uh, <laughs> Jason, it's been it's been it's been a pleasure and an honor, and we always enjoy talking to you. We really look forward to seeing your work coming up. Um, hopefully, we'll see each other in the field or or at an event here real soon once this uh, pandemic gets a little bit more under control. So, again, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you so much, Jason. We really appreciate you. It's great seeing your face. Hopefully, as Steve said, it'll be in person soon. But until the next time, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.